0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second of our series of light sensitivity awareness podcasts. My name is Rodney Mountain, and I'm here today with Professor Sally Ivetson and Julie McKechnie, who's one of our patients. We're recording from the Scottish Photobiology Service in the photobiology unit at Ninewells Hospital, and we're here today to discuss light sensitivity. This series of podcasts is part of the ongoing patient engagement work that our service is involved with. We're trying to raise awareness of light sensitivity conditions in order to reduce the time that it takes for patients to be referred to our service and also to improve the lives of our patients. Let's get started. And just with a few introductions, um, Julie, would you mind just introducing yourself?
1: Yep. So my name's Julie McKechnie and I've been diagnosed with solar articaria for around three years now, but I've been suffering with a condition since my sort of mid to late teens, which is a long time. Cause I'm yes. now 31. So.
0: <laughs> no, thanks very much. And we'll no, obviously no delve into that whole journey in a lot of detail. And uh, Sally, I'll just start with it.
2: Yeah, so I'm Sally Abbotson. I'm head of the Photobiology Unit here and The unit has been here in fact it's our 50th year this year and we're a Scottish Government national service funded to diagnose and investigate and provide advice and care for patients with abnormal light sensitivity diseases in Scotland and so we offer the service across Scotland for any patient living anywhere in Scotland and we are particularly keen to encourage referrals from GPs to local dermatology teams if they have patients with suspected light sensitivity conditions as with onward referral from their dermatology departments, we can investigate and help to make accurate diagnoses and therefore help with management and care of patients with abnormal light sensitivity.
0: Thanks very much. And I think that leads us on. Julie, I personally know very little about this condition and what these conditions are like. And it would be lovely to hear your story, your journey that you've been on, from the days when you probably had the condition, but it wasn't diagnosed right up through all the different stages. So could I hand over to you?
1: Yeah, sure. So I don't have a moment to pinpoint when this started. Some people do, they can remember it quite clearly, but for me, it was like a gradual sort of thing. Mid to late teens, and I knew something was going on, you know, I was always quite itchy and uncomfortable, and I could never quite whittle it down to what was causing it. I tried all the sort of usual things like, oh, it'll be my soap powder, it'll be fabric softener, it could be the grass, it could, you know, it could be hay fever. And it got to the stage where this was happening all the time. And I thought, I need to start narrowing this down. And at that sort of age, it was quite awkward. You know, everybody's going out and they're wanting to wear skirts and dresses and T-shirts. And no matter what I wore, I felt rubbish and being red and itchy you're embarrassed. And I thought enough's enough, I'm going to go and see a GP about this. And the first GP that i seen basically said, oh, I've got no idea what's going on. They didn't really ask me any questions. They just sort of shrugged their shoulders. And I trusted them because, you know, they're the GP, you know, they just told me to go and try some over-the-counter antihistamines and see what happened. And of course, nothing happened. It didn't make any difference, but it put me off going back for a while. And A couple of years went by and I went, right, enough's enough. I can't live like this anymore. Going outside was miserable. And I'm a very outdoorsy person. I was always cycling or hill walking or camping. And I didn't want to do any of these things anymore. I didn't want to go on family holidays. They were miserable. And I went back and I seen a different GP and she was much younger. She was a registrar and she was covering like that day in the surgery. And she said, okay, She said, I think I'm going to forward you on to dermatology because I don't know what's going on here. But I feel like because she had obviously was still at the end of her sort of training, she'd maybe came across these things a bit more. And a couple of weeks later, I went to see, it was Dr. Kenny Stewart at Inverclyde Royal. And he was fantastic. He asked me just a couple of questions. And he went, OK, I think you've got solar urticaria. Let's refer you on. And that was the first point where I felt I'm actually being taken seriously here and there might be an answer to what's going on. So after that, it was a couple of weeks and then I ended up here at Nine Wells, and we'd done the testing and I finally got some answers and that was at least 10 years from when the symptoms sort of started.
0: So it's 10 years, you think?
1: Yeah, easily around 10 years before yeah. I got any type of treatment that offered me some relief or even just an answer to what was going on.
0: I know very little about the actual testing that gets done to make the diagnosis. I suppose I could ask both of you that question of the testing that you had by the team here.
2: So we offer a wide range of different sort of light testing investigations, and they'll be tailored to the patient that we're particularly investigating at the time. And so the sort of real first mainstay is to take a really good clinical history and then the relevant examination. And then based on that, we'll often have quite a good idea of at least the likely possible diagnoses. So the main investigation that we use is something called monochromator photo testing, which is basically a fancy term for <laughs> a piece of light kit that emits light across the whole sun spectrum. So it emits light in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum, the UVB, which is the sun bit, the UVA which is the sort of light that's present on a sunny winter's day and comes through the window, and then also the visible light, which is there all year round. And so we deliver increasing doses of light at each of those wavelengths onto the back, which we know is most people's most so that's, sensitive yeah. site. Yeah. And we know what the background population range is for redness and light responses. So many of the light sensitivity conditions the reactions we'll be looking for is that redness, that sort of sunburn, that red spot at each of the wavelengths of light. And we'll do that main assessment 24 hours after the testing. Solar urticaria, which is one of the very rare light sensitivity conditions, is a bit different because in solar urticaria, it's very readily diagnosed because when we do the light testing, immediately within 15 minutes, and in fact, most people within five minutes of doing the testing will come up with a raised swollen spot at each of the wavelengths of light that the patient is sensitive to. So it's a condition that actually is often relatively straightforward to diagnose from the story if you are aware of it as a condition. Now, that in itself is a bit of a challenge because solar care is actually very rare. So your average GP will probably never see a case in their lifetime, and the average general dermatologist might see one or two cases maximum. So we obviously are well versed in it because we're a specialist unit, but it is a pretty rare condition. And in this condition, we think that in some way there's an altered immune reaction to light, and light of specific wavelengths, and it's usually either the UVA light, so the light that can come mm-hmm. through a window or the light that's there on a winter's day, or as in your case, Julia, which will come on to the visible light, which is, of course, present all year round that you can't avoid, yeah. it's just there. <laughs> and we think that in some ways you mount a sort of antibody reaction, an immune reaction to that light hitting the skin, and probably there's a protein or a chemical in the skin that's altered and an immune by it, and you get this raised hives like rash. But it can be very impactful because as soon as you go out in visible light, in your case, the patient will immediately start to get symptoms of itch, tingling, burning, redness, swelling on sites. I'm sure, Julie, you'll be able to share with us your story about how limiting it can be, but it can be very limiting. But it's a very easy to diagnose condition mm-hmm. on light testing because okay. the results are there immediately so that's the mainstay light testing investigation we do we do a range of other light tests and patch tests and allergy tests and sunscreen photo allergy tests and things as well and also blood tests to rule out other rare light sensitivity conditions such as porphyrias or
0: lupus okay yeah.
2: but the main light test is this fancy term the monochromator light okay
0: thanks so much and and Just how does it affect you day to day, your family life, having fun? You'd like outdoorsy things.
1: I have to think about everything I'm going to do in a day, from what clothes I'm going to wear to how I'm going to get somewhere, how long am I going to be outside? Even though I react to visible light, if there's a bit of cloud cover, I get a little bit longer because there's a bit more shade for me to hide in. And I've got to sort of think about all these little things when really I should just be able to get up in the morning and go. I don't want to like, have to think about, well, I need to wear long sleeves today. Is this fabric, you know, thick enough woven that I can wear it? Yeah, it takes up more time than it should, <laughs> really. But if I don't think about these things, which I don't always do, and I do sometimes throw caution to the wind, I have a really rubbish time. But, yeah, it affects everything because when I met my partner and I had to go through explaining this to him, He'd obviously never heard of it and he was sort of like, all oh, right, okay, and he's trying to be understanding and it wasn't until he's seen me have a really, really bad full body reaction, he went, oh, this is quite scary, this is serious, I didn't realise mm-hmm. it could be as bad as what mm-hmm. this is and that was sort of my own fault because when you're in a new relationship and you, you want to do things and you would really want to go, there's an outdoor swimming pool where I'm from and he really, really wanted to go, which for me was not a good idea in the slightest, yes. but I thought, it'll be fine, we won't be there long. I didn't take into consideration the light reflecting off the water, the light reflecting off, you know, the surface, like under the pool. None of that. And away I went and we had a great time until I stepped out of the water and my whole body had reacted really severely. And I'd never had such a severe reaction before and it was absolutely terrifying because I started to vomit. I was so shaky. I couldn't drive. I just sort of hid in the changing room, like what is happening to me? What have I done? I knew that I hadn't taken precautions, but I wanted to just be normal and enjoy myself and go and do something that everybody else wants to do on a summer's day and go to a swimming pool.
2: You bring out a very important point there as well. We have only really increasingly started to recognise the fact that if you have Large area involvement with light sensitivity, you can often feel quite unwell, particularly in this condition. So, you mentioned that you felt sick and you were vomiting. Did you have other symptoms as well? Oh, I get extreme fatigue if I have a really bad reaction. It's
1: almost brain foggy, where like I know what's going on, but I'm trying to explain and I'm like, my brain's just not working. You know, there's been times where I just sat there in the car and went, I can't drive yet because Mm. my brain just needs to catch up with itself.
2: Yeah. It is a condition, solar to carry that we would always advise people not to sort of dive into swimming pools and things like that because actually if you have very large area involvement, you can actually have, in extreme cases, anaphylaxis Hmm. and can be life-threatening actually. So obviously that's a fairly severe example of it.
1: That day really did scare me. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a person that usually gets upset about having this condition, but that day I was because it highlighted to me just how much it really did affect me. Because up until that point, I'd been dealing with it. And okay, life wasn't great, but i have sort of been going a long way and getting by. And then that one thing, that one normal thing that everybody was doing on that day, it got taken away from me. And that's not something I could do again. If I want to go swimming, I'm head to toe in like a skin swimsuit mm-hmm. like open water swimmers would use mm-hmm. because I can't take that risk anymore. Does it stop you doing other things? It has done, but I'm trying not to let it now. I'm trying to find solutions and workarounds to let me continue to do the things I want to do. Would you travel abroad? I'd be very hesitant to travel abroad. I would like to, but I do worry about it. So I've not been abroad for about six or seven years.
0: And this wasn't something that you had in early childhood. It was something that developed, is my understanding. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, my early childhood, we were always away camping, caravanning, outdoors all the time from early morning till late at night. If it had been then, they would have knew something was wrong, but nothing, absolutely nothing. Even my mum and dad were like, oh, you're always outside, Julie, it can't be that. (laughs) Because it came out of nowhere, you know, it just started happening.
2: So you don't remember an exact moment when it happened? No. No, no. I suppose with, with it being in childhood. Interestingly, in this condition, when patients develop it in adulthood, they often, it's one of the telltale signs, they'll come to clinic and they say, at 10 o'clock on Saturday, this started. Or they can really, really, really closely pinpoint the exact day and time when it started. I mean, I think in your case, obviously, because it, yeah. it's so long ago. I can't really remember it, but-
1: Sometimes I sort of wish I had that because I think I'd have chased it up sooner. Yeah. But I didn't know, you know, mm. and I was so sure, oh, it'll be something else. It'll be, like I said, washing up powder or fabric softener, or all the usual suspects mm-hmm. when you're that sort of age and your skin's starting to act a bit funny. Mm-hmm.
0: And Julie, the sort of information on the condition, you know, any of us, when we have something wrong with us, we often go to the internet and have a look for information on what's wrong. What have you found out there?
1: Very little. Very, very little. I mean, when Dr Stewart had said that I think this is what it could be, I'm going to refer you on, but in the meantime, here's some information. Even he had very little to actually give me in print format because there wasn't that much out there. And he did say this is something that we are looking into because even we don't know that much about it. And I was the second person he'd seen in 20 years. At that time, I thought, well, if someone like him can't find that much information... What am I going to find on the internet? There was very, very little, and some of the stuff that there was suggested that it was very easy to treat. You know, it was slap on some sunscreen, take a couple antihistamines, and you'll be fine. Well, I'd done all that, and it didn't work. And then there's a great group on Facebook, which is fairly recent, and that's been really, really good because it's people sort of all over the world who are suspecting or have been diagnosed with the condition and sharing information that they're finding. It's nice to know it's not just you. And I mean, there's people in there who have been here at Ninewells and knowing that there's other people in Scotland that are nearby that have been through it, it's weirdly comforting because at first I thought, I've never heard of this and now I've got this and I know nobody. There's nobody I can talk to about this. But that's not true now, so.
2: Well, that's good. And we have started now on the back of sort of trying to understand more about light sensitivity and its impact, started doing patient engagement events. Pre-pandemic, we had one that was in person at the V&A here in Dundee and then the pandemic hit and they've all been virtual ever since. Yeah. And we have found that patients have really liked that. And for those very reasons, it, it allows you to sort of share stories in a sort of controlled way with people who've yeah. been similarly affected. And it can be anything from sharing stories about the psychological impact of it through to where to get the best sun protective clothing or is Tesco or Asda's sun vests yeah, better than the other it. sort of thing, Sarah?
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, what strategies have you developed to protect yourself?
1: Because it's visible light that triggers me, clothing sort of as your number one outside of the Fixaphenidine that I take.
2: How much does that help, do you think, the antihistamine?
1: It buys me some time when I'm outside. It doesn't eradicate anything, but it definitely buys me time. It enables me to be outside. Mm-hmm.
0: So you take that every day?
1: Yeah, I take two of them I every the day. day. Um, I tried Montelucast as well, but that didn't really work for me. Mm-hmm. And I've got the Dundee cream as well, but you know it's quite thick and gloopy and it's not always practical depending on what you're wearing. So I don't always use it, but when I do that, it's a big help. But for me, it's clothing. Clothing's the main factor.
0: And very specific about the type of clothing.
1: Yeah, so what I've gone today, obviously people can't see, but I'm wearing a jumpsuit and it's black with white polka dots on it. In the past, if I'd taken this off, you would see where the white polka dots are would be little red dots all over my body. It would be very, very clear. If I wear sandals, you could see the strap marks of where the gaps in the sandals had been. So I've got to really think about what fabric I'm wearing, how much light can get through it. So I'll be standing there in a shop, pulling things in all directions. Can I see through that? No, that'll be okay. How much coverage does it have at the neckline?
0: It's difficult really cause... important. Is there a measure for clothing?
2: Well, there are. There are. Yeah, UPFs. Sort of, so there is. are. You know, clothing protection factors. What we have found that is, it's the weave of the clothing mm-hmm. that is the most reliable guide. So if you do what you do and hold it up to the yeah. light and you can see through it, it won't protect mm-hmm. you. For any given fabric, a dark color will protect. Around about oh, yeah, white's so. out of yeah. the question
1: yeah, yeah, for yeah. me, unless it's got a very large print with white in it. I can sometimes get away with that, but white in general, a white T-shirt would be a no-go yes. for me.
2: And you have to also watch with swimwear and things like that. So the rash vests and things, if you wash them with Please serial swim. washing, they lose some of their protection as well. Yeah, even do. just
1: clothes in general, once they start to stretch yeah. past a certain point, yeah. they're, they're of no use to me yeah. anymore.
2: We do sometimes have patients come and they've spent an absolute fortune on branded some protected clothing but actually as long as the weave is tied more in terms of money spent isn't more in terms of protection actually
1: yeah I've got things from all sorts of shops you know tops that have been £5 up to tops that have been £50 and none are better than the other it's just you've got to look around and find things that work you've got to actually look at stuff you can't just pick it up you have to think and look is this going to work for me since I've had this UV treatment, mm-hmm. like the top that I'm wearing today is quite stretchy, but I've built up that little bit of tolerance now that this isn't too bad. I can get away with this. But without that, even this long sleeve top would have been a, a no-go. So the
2: UV treatment that Julie's having is actually UVB light treatment. And the reason we can use that is because you're visible light sensitive. Yeah. So you really do need to do the light testing to know which wavelengths you're sensitive to before you can advise on light treatment but because you're visible light sensitive we can use the uvb light which are the much shorter wavelengths that you're not sensitive to to try and you know three times a week over uh, you've had several weeks worth of treatment now try and build up some natural tolerance against the visible light so it can raise your threshold that you can also try and develop that yourself i'm saying yourself i mean one can uh, if you have a light sensitivity Many patients can often try and naturally harden by getting low dose, repeated natural exposure with sort of sub triggering.
1: Yeah, that was something I had to do at the start of lockdown Mm -hmm. because I'd lost every bit of tolerance I had because we were indoors all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think I'd spoke to you at the phone during that. I was having a really tough time. Every time I went outside, it was within minutes. I didn't want to go outside. I was absolutely miserable. So I had to sort of just start low and build that back up again myself because obviously everything was shut down with COVID and it it did help a little bit.
0: How do you actually do that in practical terms, starting low and building up? for short periods of time? For me
1: it was, yeah, it was very short periods of time and I would gradually, so I would go out like the first day just for a couple of minutes and the first few days I just, I had like my hands and my face and then... Mm -hmm. A slightly shorter, like leg of the trousers, just gradually bit by bit until I felt a bit more comfortable and the reactions were taking a bit longer to develop. I mean, they never go away completely, but buying that bit of extra time for
2: me is the most important part to be able to enjoy the things that I enjoy. Yes, it's one of the things we actually developed a patient information sheet on natural hardening with the pandemic because we had to stop all hospital based light therapy mm-hmm. for basically two consecutive. Yes. Yeah. And so we had to switch patients all to natural hardening. So, as a rule of thumb, it'll depend on what the light sensitivity condition is. So for Judy's case, where by just a minute or two mm-hmm. would trigger your problem, you're talking about going out for half a minute early on and half a minute later on and building it up. But for other light sensitivities where maybe it would take an hour to trigger your problem, mm-hmm. you would go out for lower levels, just sub triggering levels. Or, or, you know, if someone's trigger times 30 minutes, I'll often say, okay, we'll go out at 10 in the morning for 15 minutes and then 10 in the morning at 4 o'clock. But it has to be repeated several times a week to try and build up. And if you are exquisitely sensitive, then you're often not able to naturally harden or have hospital-based light treatment. If your sensitivity is so extreme, then you often don't have that window for it. But fortunately, with Julie, because of it being visible light, it does mean that we can use the UV. It absolutely
1: has had some Mm -hmm. benefits. I mean... The fact that I can have sort of knee to ankle out now is quite nice. I'm not stuck in long trousers Mm -hmm. all the time. My legs do still react, but as I said, I have that time. You know, I've got that longer, which Mm -hmm. is nice, Mm -hmm. especially when you cycle because there's nothing worse than summer and you're out cycling Mm -hmm. and you've got long trousers off. (laughs)
2: And And with hindsight, how did it impact on childhood? Because obviously having a light-sensitive condition as a child is quite a challenge, isn't it? We see patients who do present with light sensitivity in childhood. Do you think now, looking back, did it impact on your schooling or your friendships? Were you teased Um, or did you have troubles? My friendship
1: circle was really, really good. So nobody ever really mentioned anything like that. I didn't really Mm -hmm. experience anything like that. A lot of it was more my self-confidence was affected because I sort of felt like, oh, what are these horrible big red patches? I don't want people to see these. Mm -hmm. So, you know... I was always sort of wrapped up because I was embarrassed that people would say, oh, well, what's that? Oh, what's mm-hmm. going on? Mm-hmm. But my friendship circle like, was really, really good. And even if I did know what it was, they would have been totally understanding of it. Mm-hmm. But for me, it felt like I don't want people to see this. Or if I'm scratching all the time, like people who don't know me are going to think, what's wrong with her? You know.
2: Did you manage with sort of playtime at schools and PE and things like that? because i was sort of like my mid teens i was just
1: about leaving school okay so that wasn't really a problem for mm-hmm. me but like mm-hmm. i started working when i left school and i worked in a restaurant and now looking back it was like a white shirt and black trousers and we had an outdoor seating area and you know i was always quite uncomfortable and i did sort of dread the going outside could have had something to do with it mm-hmm. i really didn't enjoy mm-hmm. that and looking back i can see why i was in a white shirt so yeah <laughs> that's why it would be setting me off mm.
2: and do you find that actually you're as bad in the winter or even worse in the winter than in the summer just with it being visible light do you find that there is any seasonal pattern um,
1: to it if it's one of those winter days where it's quite frosty mm. and the light sort of bouncing off the ground or if there's snow i find that can trigger me quite badly mm-hmm. If it's a sort of dull cloudy day where everything's a bit more shaded it's not as bad mm. but in general, I do react sort of year round. I don't really get that much respite from it.
2: Are you all right with artificial lighting? Yeah, I was, I was going to ask just in the yeah, street Yeah,
1: for the most part. But part of me wonders if that's just tolerance from always sort of working, mm-hmm. mostly indoors and mm-hmm. obviously at home. There was one point where when we moved into our house and we changed the light bulbs, they set me off straight away and we changed them straight back again. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, whenever I got on a train... The lighting on the train will always set me off, which is a strange one. It's very specific. I I don't know why. And there's been the odd time in restaurants where the sort of lighting in that restaurant has triggered my hands. But thankfully, it's not too bad. It's not something that causes me as much bother as sort of natural light from outside.
2: Or do you ever, for example, get your nails done? nails with the
1: hardening. Thing. Yeah, I, I tried that once and my hands were on fire. Oh, so it, yeah, yeah. It, it it didn't happen again. It was for a wedding. And I sort of, I knew that this might happen. But I was a bridesmaid and didn't want to let my friend down. So <laughs> I thought, well, I'll try it anyway. I had a nice sort of line from where like my fingers were sort of under the light. The rest of my hand was white and my fingers were screaming red and itchy.
2: See, once you start to probe, it does invade all aspects of life, really. And you've obviously grown great resilience with it all. It does. I mean, there's times where I think
1: I'd love to wear that outfit or I'd love to do this. And I've just got to accept that I can't or if I want to, I need to find a way to make it work. Mm -hmm. Because the times that I do just go off stuff that I'm doing it anyway. I will regret it and I will be uncomfortable.
2: And it's probably not always the safest option. Mm -hmm. And do you overall feel that it's got better, worse or stayed the same throughout your life?
1: I think it's changed. There's been periods where it's been really quite bad, but that sort of through lockdown, the first part of lockdown was horrific. But then I'd had no exposure. I wasn't going anywhere. I was either in my house or at work. Now that I've been through sort of summer and I've been having like the UV treatment, it's at a good place at the minute. It's livable but then there'll be times where there's been times where I could go like over a week and have no reaction at mm-hmm. all and in my head I think oh that might be it I might be one of these lucky people where it's just disappeared mm-hmm. and then it comes back mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's it, it's quite variable which is also makes it frustrating because you don't always quite know what you're going to get that day. Yeah. so
2: Julie's obviously now on the antihistamines and the light treatment as an approach and I think as you say there it's sort of got it to a level that's kind of life is okay with but obviously if that became not the case and you yeah. needed something else then there are other treatments that we can offer over and above such as immune suppressing tablets or there is also a biologic drug called omalizumab, which blocks the receptor that we think immune reactions involved with in yeah. this condition and in around two-thirds of people that can be very effective but obviously once you go Into sort of immune suppressing tablets or biologic drugs, we have to have lots of discussions about it's risk benefit, you know, at what stage. So, I think we've at the moment you've felt that the light therapy and the antihistamines and things have given you a level of control that is okay, but there are other options. If it was to
1: continue being manageable like this, then that would be great, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, and I, I do sort of hope that is the case because going down the other routes, I know that they're a lot more in depth and a lot more serious and it's not something i really want to go down if i can avoid it
2: i mean they're, they're usually very safe and they're monitored and things but yeah it's obviously with any treatment or any tablet or anything you take there's always that sort of what's the risk benefit yeah you know what what am i going to get out of this versus any mm. potential side effects or yeah. whatever so
1: what i've got at the minute sort of is close to normal it's, i've ever had for a very long time which yeah. is quite nice yeah, cool. and of course i do still react but because it's not at the level it was at the minute it's much more bearable
2: yes it's interesting as well you mentioned about sunscreens and the dundee creams being a bit difficult to use and there are other mineral based tinted sunscreens available now That yeah uh, I, I got yeah. an information yes, with last yes, time yes, i yes. spoke so, to you yeah which actually we know provide slightly better protection than the dundee creams against the sort of visible part of the dundee creams excuse my ignorance yeah it's a particular particle size of titanium dioxide that offers a bit more protection Protection. into the blue violet part of the visible spectrum so sunscreen formulations are fantastic these days but they're particularly manufactured for ordinary sunburn protection really and so for patients such as julie with say visible light sensitivity your average sunscreen is not as good at offering protection into the visible part of the spectrum and actually historically sunscreens that do offer protection into that visible part of the spectrum are cosmetically quite difficult to use yeah. because they have high concentrations of titanium dioxide they reflect off light. they're white they're oh, thick. They're yeah, I sort of apply. like in Dundee creams. Yeah. So I like tinted yeah. pseudo cream in, in that respect. Yes. Yeah. And so, for a long time, Dundee creams have been the only really available sunscreen that provides that extra bit of blue visible light protection. Mm. And they're available on prescription through Tayside Pharmaceuticals. So, you know, just for normal sunburn, you wouldn't use Dundee creams. But if you also need additional protection against visible light, then Dundee creams can be very helpful. But with formulations of sunscreens coming on, there are now, you know, this visible range of mineral
0: tinted. So the improvements all the time it's, in the, yeah, in yeah, the creams yeah.
2: and things. Yeah, I've noticed that. I think a lot
1: more people are becoming sort of sun savvy these days. So yeah. companies are wanting to jump on that and provide these things that people now want. Whereas before, it was just oh well, this protects against sunburn. Whereas I think people are being a bit more aware of how dangerous the sun can
2: actually be. No, that's right. And I think there's a move towards sunscreens. Providing better visible and long UVA protection for the anti aging effects as well, yeah. because obviously in terms of the market the you know protection against sun induced aging there's big demand for that, so formulations have really really yeah. moved on, and they're also providing some tint to them, which does allow you say for example, using on your face to have a color match rather than just having a white white yeah, yeah yeah
1: when i first got them, um, dundee
2: cream it was quite a bit. of a tinted the dundee yeah. creams there's three color tints so the dundee creams are better than some of the other sort of historically thicker whiter sort of reflectant products but they're still sometimes not the easiest to use
1: no i find if i apply it with like a sort of fluffy makeup brush it kind of blends it in a bit better yeah I've said it with like a translucent powder over the top just to keep it there because throughout the day it does stick to things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if I had on my legs and I'm sitting on someone's leather sofa and you
2: you stand up (laughs) and you think, oh my
1: goodness.
2: (laughs) I think sunscreen is very individual as well. I mean, so it's great to have choice with sunscreens because some people swear by, for example, Dundee creams other people find that difficult to use. And I think it's like moisturiser. It's it's sort of, you know. Yeah, I mean, the Dundee
1: cream does work for me, but my preference would be something much easier to put on. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Julie this has been absolutely fascinating listening to the journey that you've been on Were there any things that we've not covered in this conversation that would mm. do you think might be useful to other people who might have the condition or?
1: It's always worth pushing to be referred on yeah. to a dermatologist and sort of stand on your groundwork because it's something that I wish I did and I was angry that it took so long for me to be sort of diagnosed and get some answers. But when you get diagnosed and you learn how rare this actually is, you can see why people haven't heard of it. You can see why people are hesitant with treatments because they don't know. They've never came across it before. And I can't be annoyed at someone not able to treat something they'd never heard of.
0: Because it's so rare.
1: Yeah, because it's so rare. Mm. So I would always like encourage people if they suspect that they have a sort of light sensitivity, just ask for that referral. You know, don't be afraid to say, I think something else is going on here. Mm. Because now that I've had a diagnosis and there are sort of treatments happening, my life is much better. Because my life before wasn't normal. Mentally, it was quite draining. Whereas now I understand what's going on. So I can live my life a bit better.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I ask just as a, a final point as well about vitamin D? Do you take vitamin D?
1: Yes, I um, do. Because when I came here a couple of years ago and got the initial testing done, my levels were very, very low. Yeah. And now that with the supplements, obviously they're much higher, they're much more in the sort of normal level. I do think maybe that does help a little bit as well.
2: Yes, yes. Because vitamin D, that's something that, you know, just by virtue of living in Scotland, there's a fairly high prevalence of vitamin D deficiency. And the reason for that is because the main source of any of us getting vitamin D is through the effects of UVB light on the skin, you know, the sort of sunburny bit of the sun. And so for patients living in Scotland who also have light sensitivity and are sun avoiding, you know, the chances of vitamin D deficiency are very low. It's a vitamin that is very hard to get through the diet. So you have to eat really sort of industrial amounts of things like oily fish to get decent levels through the diet, so we'll very often recommend vitamin D supplements. And people with solar urticaria specifically seem to be very at risk of vitamin D deficiency. I think the reason for that is because you have your symptoms so quickly with exposure. You don't need an awful lot of UVB to get vitamin D levels, but in solar urticaria, because you are so sensitive, you are out of the sun. Yeah. Some of the other light sensitivity conditions where maybe the symptoms take an hour or so to be triggered, they've often had enough exposure to get vitamin a d production blood. but in solar carry, we do know that most people with solar carry will have very low vitamin d levels
1: yeah i was mm-hmm. very deficient at first when i was first tested
2: mm-hmm. yeah. we check that once a year usually yeah thereabouts
1: yeah it was done not long yeah.
2: ago actually yeah. yeah the light therapy will help with that as well
1: yeah it's give <laughs> me a, a bit of a color as well actually <laughs> which is nice after so many years yeah. of being pale
0: yeah would either of you <laughs> like to add in anything else you Any have thoughts and ideas sally or julie
2: We're just very grateful, Julie, for you coming along today and doing this podcast because you're obviously very resilient about it and you've had this light sensitivity for such a long time, but you really have highlighted that when we probe into it, that actually there's all sorts of aspects of life that it impacts on.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm so happy to talk about Mm -hmm. it because people who haven't heard of it don't quite understand the full Mm -hmm. scope of what it is. It's not just about avoiding sunlight, it's Mm -hmm. so much more. But also, like there's not that many people like well there's people like me who didn't know anyone else with this and I think it's important that they hear somebody saying what it's really like and they can maybe relate to it a little bit you know and
2: know that it's not just them. Yes no that's right and I think what you said you know so for anybody with symptoms where they think they have light sensitivity you know do go and see your GP and some of the light sensitivity conditions are quite common and are easily diagnosed by the GP and managed but if not, then they will be referred up to local dermatology and then the local dermatologists will refer on. In Scotland that will be here to the photobiology unit here and we're always delighted to accept referrals.
1: Yeah, I mean from the minute I got referred to Dr Stewart to from there to now everything's been great. I mean it's been nice to be taken seriously and have people who absolutely understand what's going on and Getting that little bit of hope that there is something we can do about this, whereas before I didn't, I thought this was I'm I'm stuck with whatever this is forever. Actually, getting a diagnosis and being able to think, okay, I'm I'm not crazy. Like I do have a condition. There is answers. There is people who can help me. That
2: was quite life changing. I think you highlight what we have heard before, and it is understandable. I think that often. If you go and see a doctor about a condition and actually perhaps at the time there's nothing to see, so you don't have a rash or you don't have anything, then understandably it is sometimes difficult to know quite what's going on, but you highlight something that we're keen to try and raise awareness of, I think, and and that's part of the reason for today isn't it? It's been a good experience getting to
1: know and knowing that there's a team of people who are able to help me and who want to help other people who've got these conditions. It's, yeah, it's, it's
0: good. Well, Julie, thank you so much. No I, problem at all. Thank so you. so much for contributing to the chat. If you've enjoyed the podcast and would like more information about light sensitivity, please have a listen to some of our other episodes. There's also a wealth of information on the NHS Photobiology website. The details of how to find this can be found in the description of this podcast. But thank you for listening.